Well, good evening. I'm thankful to be here tonight and to be able to bring you God's Word, and especially this passage in 1 Timothy chapter 1. It's a new year. It's full of new things, full of new beginnings. I remember when I started to realize that the new year didn't always bring all of the promises that I thought it would. My problems didn't disappear. I didn't wake up changed. All of the habits and things that I wanted changed. They were not. I was still the same person on January 1st. I see more apathy and discouragement around me in, in the people in my life and the people in the world, the older that I get. And the more of life that I taste and experience, the more I learn humanity has built up all these traditions, all these ideas to try and take the burden and pass it off onto something else, time and time again, and with great failure. Now friends, I don't know what you've brought into this building with you tonight. I don't know what's in your mind or on your heart. I don't know the burdens on your shoulders, but what I do know is my own. Now when I read verse 15, of 1 Timothy chapter 1, and I see the title, the chief of sinners, or the foremost of sinners, or the worst sinner. The first person that comes to mind is me. And I wonder if it's the same for you. I know I'm not the only one here who many times his past haunts him. I know that not a single soul in this room is sinless. And so I ask you, does your current struggle with sin or your past life, does it trouble you? Does it bring you distress? There's a pithy saying, time heals all wounds. But the wound of guilt and shame proves to be awful resilient to time. Now on your way here, did you see any snow outside? It's taken a long time and it's too late for Christmas now, but it's decided to come. Now when the snow falls in a good amount, it covers the ground and what was once dead grass, lifeless grass, dark asphalt and concrete, it's now covered with a pure blanket of soft white snow. And it's beautiful. But especially here, it doesn't take much until that snow starts to melt away and be worn away by all the cars on the road, all the people walking on the sidewalk, and then what do you see? Underneath that same dull, gray, lifeless, ugly ground. I'm afraid that this is the way that many Christians are living their lives today. We believe in Christ, in his work on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, but it doesn't take much for our faith to be worn down for the enemy to begin to whisper those lies about our struggle with sin, about our past life. And pretty soon our faith is being worn and worn by the same thoughts that trouble us, like tire tracks in the road wearing away the snow. Well, friends, in many ways this experience can be a good thing if it brings us back to Christ. These wounds are resilient to time in many ways, but that's because time will not heal them. These wounds are only healed by another wound, by the wounds that were taken on by Christ. 
In Isaiah 53, we all know this passage. It reads, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes, with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Friends, tonight I'm here to tell you that there is a Savior for the chief of sinners. As we look at our text in 1 Timothy chapter 1, we need to understand the context of the letter. There's much to get out of these verses that we're focusing on from 12 to 17, but it's properly understood and it's greatly enriched by knowing Paul's themes, his overarching purpose in the letter. And so in this letter of 1 Timothy, Paul's writing, obviously, to Timothy. Now, he's writing concerning the situation in Ephesus and the churches that he's left Timothy in charge of to oversee. And in verses 3 to 7 of chapter 1, we see what's going on. There are false teachers here. There are some among the group of Christians who are teaching something other than the gospel. They desire to be teachers of the law, Paul says, but they don't have understanding the truth is that they are not using the law lawfully, and in this, they've forgotten the gospel. They're losing the gospel, even. They've forgotten who they were, and they've forgotten the very nature and purpose of their salvation. And when we get to our passage, verses 12 to 17, it might seem like a bit of a tangent. Paul's talking about false apostles, or false teachers, rather. He's telling Timothy, I charge you. Tell these people to stop it. He explains how they're using the law unlawfully. And now all of a sudden he's on about the gospel. Well, this is no tangent. And Paul is not chasing rabbits here. Because the fact is, this, our passage, is the very foundation of everything that Paul's talking about in this letter. I want you to think for a minute what, what's going on here. Paul's writing... To Timothy, who's overseeing the church. And what is the church? The church is the gathering of believers, those who have been saved by grace through faith and the finished work of Christ on the cross. And Paul gives instructions for the church. Now, what are these instructions based on? Where do they come out of? It must be the gospel. And so what Paul's writing here, this is the focal point. Everything else he says relies on the fact that this gospel is true. This gospel is trustworthy. So I want to ask you another question. Have you strayed from the gospel? Have you, like those people that Paul writes about in verses 3 to 7, have you been dragged off into false doctrines? Have you had itching ears that want to be tickled by preachers who will tell you what you want to hear? Have you maybe been dragged off of the word and off of your faith in Christ into some other things, some higher knowledge, what the world is putting out there that no one else seems to know about. Are you losing your firm footing in the scripture? 
I fear many of us are forgetting who we are and we're forgetting who God is. Now in verse 5, Paul writes that the aim of this charge, which is to tell these false teachers, stop it, the aim of this charge is love. And this love issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now remember what the mark of a Christian is. It's not knowledge. It's love. Love for God and love for neighbor. Are not these the two greatest commandments? The Christian life is a mission of love. It's a tarrying in affection that is proved by our action. But this love needs to come from somewhere. We can't must. So where does this come from? This love comes from a pure heart and from a good conscience and a sincere faith. Can a man or a woman have any of these by their own efforts? Can sinners purify their own hearts? Can the guilty cleanse their own conscience? Can you save yourself? We love not because we can change our own heart and crush stone into beating flesh. We love because he first loved us. God is the first mover in our salvation. He takes our heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh. It's his life in us as we're united to him by faith in Christ that is the source of this love. Do not make the mistake these false teachers made. They sought to obtain their eternal security by their own efforts, their own strength, their own merit. They were seeking after some higher accolades, some next level spirituality. My friends, there is no such thing apart from the gospel. And here we must establish this as our grounding point. Salvation is from God alone. It's found in Christ alone. It's secured in God alone. And it's made secure by him with the spirit who's given to indwell us as a seal of our inheritance, a guarantee of our future. These foundational doctrines, we've all heard this before, but do not let this sound like empty words, like repeated lessons that you would go to school and listen to and then it's in one ear and out the next. This is what you bank your life upon. The truth of scripture is our anchor. And woe to us if we should depart from it. Because the waves of doctrinal error and compromise, they are very swift to carry off course those who would let go of this anchor of the gospel. Now in verses 8 to 11, after he's given us the issues going on, Paul writes about the use of the law. And he says that the law is good. Now, this isn't the first time Paul addresses this topic. In fact, one of the main groups of opposition that he faced were called the Judaizers. And these guys, they pop up all over the New Testament in Paul's letters. Essentially, what this group would do is they would follow Paul and try to undo everything he's done. And in doing so, they would seek to take Jewish and Gentile believers. And instead of letting them 
have their freedom, have their grace in, in the gospel of Christ, they would seek to bring them back under the yoke of circumcision, under the yoke of obedience to the law of Moses. Now, in our context here, we don't know if these false teachers are Judaizers specifically, but what Paul's saying, it applies all the same. These people might have been taken up in Gnosticism, some kind of secret uh, religious knowledge, some kind of pagan doctrines or ideas, but the fact of the matter is that they are adding to the gospel. That is the issue here. And they're using the law to do it. And so Paul lays out for us, what is the proper use of the law? And he says, it is not laid down for the just, but for the unjust. The purpose of the law, it's not to justify, it's to condemn. In Romans 7 verse 8, talking on this topic, Paul writes, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness, which is the sin that is characterizing what he's talking about in this argument. For apart from the law, he says, sin lies dead. Now in Galatians, he writes, the law was a guardian until Christ came. In Galatians 5, verse 1 to 6, we read this. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace, for through the Spirit... By faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. We are not under the law. We're under grace. Jesus Christ came to fulfill the law even to abolish the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, as Ephesians says, in order to reconcile both Jew and Gentile through one body in the cross of Christ. Now, why do I labor this point about the law and gospel? Well, this is because each and every one of us will be tempted when we sin to revert to a works mentality. We will attempt to regain favor with God by what we do. Friends, we are not saved by our own works. Much less will we keep our salvation by our own works. It's all of grace. So the law is not laid down for the just. It's laid down for the unjust. It's not laid down for the justified, redeemed Christian. Therefore, the law ought to be put in its proper place. It's not our foundation. The gospel is our foundation. The rest of this letter to Timothy, full of instruction from the church, it's not written from the law. It's written from the gospel. It doesn't derive its content or authority from the law, but from the gospel. It's towards the aim of love. Recall Paul's words in the beginning 
of chapter 1, where he says the aim of our charge is love. And it issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And these characteristics, characteristics of a Christian, these things are a gift from God. These things are all wrapped up in our salvation. Now let's look at verses 12 to 14. We read these words. Paul writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Notice how Paul doesn't credit himself with this ministry. He gives all credit to God. He gives all credit to the one who gives him strength, which is Christ Jesus. And look at the contrast between Paul and the false teachers earlier. What's going on here? We see that Paul writes his calling and his strength are from God. The false teachers, they're grasping in their own strength at a position of authority and influence. These false teachers are proud, and Paul is humble. The false teachers will boast in their own obedience, and Paul will boast in his weakness and in his unworthiness. And this is the attitude of a Christian. We do not boast in our obedience. We boast in our weakness. God has saved us. He's given us a pure heart. He's cleansed us of all our guilt and covered our shame. He's given us the gift of faith, and we love because he first loved us. Everything that comes after this passage in 1 Timothy, in fact, all the New Testament teaching for the church, is built on this foundation of the gospel. It all flows from this central truth. Have you been trying to live the Christian life apart from the gospel? On your own strength, mustering up all the motivation that you can find within yourself. It's so easy to fall into this mindset of doing good works to gain favor with God. To appear to others and even to ourselves that we're more religious, we're more spiritual, we're more faithful because we're doing more. In our success-driven society, it's only natural to work hard to gain approval. That's simply the way of the world. You don't get a promotion unless you've gained that approval by working hard. You have to prove yourself in this world. And so the natural fallen nature wants to prove himself before God. And sometimes the sufficiency of Christ's atoning death on the cross for us, it's difficult to grasp this. It's difficult for us to accept this. I'm sure we've all heard that the gospel is offensive. And this is one of the ways that it offends us. It looks us in the face and says, you can't do it. You're not good enough. You want God's approval? Well, you can't get it outside of the gospel. And that's offensive to the heart that's proud. To the person who wants to be puffed up better than the next person beside him. Now, when I sin as a Christian, I feel guilty. I feel shame. 
Many times I can think that God is shaking his head in disappointment, in disapproval at me. I sometimes feel as though he would rather I didn't pray to him. After all, I just seem to keep messing up. How can I gain his favor now? How can I undo the wrong that I've done? How can I make this right and appease him? Is there something I can do to make up for my mistakes and my sins so that God is happy with me? No. No. Oh, Christian, there is nothing you can do. You cannot pay for your sin. You cannot pay for your debt. How many of us here pay bills? Kids, if you haven't raised your hand, enjoy this time. Enjoy the freedom while it lasts. But I want you to picture this scenario with me. You come home after a long, hard day of toiling and slaving to pay off your bills. Your situation is not very good. You have a lot of debt. The interest alone is frightening, and the rates just seem to keep going up. And unfortunately, I don't think this is hard for us to picture right now, is it? But still you go on working, hoping by some miracle you'll manage to pay it off at some point in your life. And so one day you go up to your bank, you walk inside, and you go to make a payment towards your debt. You walk up to the teller, and now what normally happens is they'll pull up your account, you'll hand over the money, they'll put it against your debt, you'll walk away, end of story. But this time the teller just stands there, and they kind of give you a weird look. And you're impatient with them. And you say, look, I just want to pay off some of my debt. Can you bring up my account? And they just look at you and they say, I'm sorry, I don't know what you're talking about. There is no debt. And you're shocked. See, what has just happened is right before you walked into this bank to pay off a little percentage of your debt with your own hard-earned money, someone else walked into that bank and they paid every last cent. Your debt's gone. It's no longer yours. But what's more, they filled your checking account with so much money, the computer doesn't have the zeros to put on it. What are you going to do now? Are you going to go back to your job, try and work up some more money to pay against your debt? Of course not. There's no more debt to pay. You're free to enjoy what's been given to you. And in the overflow of that joy and that gratitude, you now seek to imitate the one who is so generous to you and you give to others in need. And you share the great abundance in love. Now, in much the same way, Christ walked on the earth as a man and he took your debt of sin upon himself, nailing it to the cross. Your debt is gone. Your guilt is erased. But what's more than this? He's given you his righteousness as a covering. His righteous robes that were stripped off of him when he was nailed and hung up naked on that cross. Those righteous robes are put on you. Those righteous robes are given to all who would believe on him for salvation. Now look at verse 15 with me. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world 
to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. As we sit here, having heard these words, all of us who are burdened by the reality of sin, who are discouraged at our failings, maybe even haunted by our past, here in the scripture, Paul comes over, he sits down with us, and he identifies in our weakness, and he points us to Jesus. Christian, when you sin today, know that your heavenly Father has not written down that sin in his book of records so that you can come back later and repay it or make amends or do penance for it. That sin was paid for on the cross. As the writer to the Hebrews asserts in Hebrews 10.10, and by that will, by the will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross in your place, it's sufficient. The work is done. The price is paid. So come back to the gospel. Jesus is enough. I want you to know that this struggle with sin, it's not unique to you and it's not unique to me. If you like, you can turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to look briefly at the great man of God, that patriarch, Abraham. Now in Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham out from his land. He gives him great promises. He gives him a great future. And there Abraham builds an altar and he worships God. And what happens next? The very next passage, beginning in chapter or verse 10 of chapter 12, says there was a famine in the land. And so Abraham, Abram and Sarai, they go down to Egypt. And what does he do? He tells his wife, tell them I'm your sister. He was afraid of what the Egyptians would do to him in order to have her. A great spiritual blessing, a great spiritual moment to the great patriarch Abraham, followed by a great act of doubt and unfaithfulness and sin. If you go to the right a little more, you'll end up at Genesis chapter 16. And we'll see again, after one of God's great promises, that he will give them a son. He will give them offspring. In verse 16, or chapter 16, verse 2, we read, And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. He didn't listen to the voice of God. Another moment of unfaithfulness and sin. If you keep going, you'll end up at the account of Sodom and Gomorrah. This famous account of cities that were destroyed by God. But right before this, the Lord appears to Abraham. And at Abraham's request, the Lord says, I will spare the cities if there are only a few righteous persons in there. 
And the Lord saves Lot and Lot's family. He rains down fire and sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah. And in Genesis 19, verses 27 to 28, we see that Abraham looks and he sees this. He sees the city destroyed. He sees this great act of judgment from his God. And what does he do next? Well, in chapter 20, he journeys towards the Negev and he runs into Abimelech. And what do you think he says to Abimelech? He doesn't tell him the truth. He says, Sarah is my sister. And a whole heap of trouble goes on in that household because of this. Now, how can Abraham, after all of these incredible things he's seen, all these incredible things he's been told and promised, even this exact situation he's been in before, why didn't he learn? How could he do this? Well, this is not unique to him. You can keep turning and turning and turning. You'll find his son Isaac. You'll find his son Jacob. And you'll find their entire family wrought with Dysfunction and sin and pain and repeated patterns of unfaithfulness. The whole nation of Israel, in fact, is characterized most often in the Old Testament, not by their faithfulness, but their unfaithfulness. You would think that 40 years of wandering in the wilderness would maybe make them learn a lesson, but no. From the Exodus to the Kings to the exile, to the second temple, through Jesus' day, Israel does not learn. The prophet Hosea is told by God to marry a prostitute and to have children with her as a living illustration of God's relationship with Israel. Ouch. That is not a good statement. Do you know what Hosea names their children? He names them Jezreel, meaning God scatters. Lo Ruhama, meaning no mercy or not loved. And Lo Ami, meaning not my people. This is the people of God. Do you think that you're unique in your struggle with sin? Your patterns of falling into the same thing over and over. Just read through the Bible you'll find virtually every single person except Jesus and maybe Melchizedek is marked by a life of sin. The fact is we're all sinful people. But what does God say? In this same book of Hosea, this same prophet that gives these scathing judgments against the people, God says this in Hosea 11 verses 8 to 9. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. 
Did God wipe out his people? Did God break his promises? Did he break his covenant? When he came to the earth, did he come in wrath? No. He came in love. And this is how God loved the world. He sent his only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The wrath that we deserved, in one way it did come, but it wasn't borne by us. That wrath was taken by Christ. The wrath we deserved at Christ's coming was taken by Christ himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now come back to our text in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Let's look at verses 16 to 17. Paul writes, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, as the chief of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The reason or the purpose that Paul gives for God's mercy upon him, is that in him, as the chief of sinners, God's great patience in Christ Jesus would be displayed to all people as a testimony of the gospel. Are not the accounts we looked at in the Old Testament a testimony of God's great patience, of his great mercy, the Old Testament is for our instruction, but let's not stop at merely seeing Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel. Let's not stop at seeing them as mere companions. Let us see above and beyond with a wide lens through the whole scope of redemptive history. Let us see Christ in the scriptures. Why did God labor in love and patience with his people? Because of Christ. What is God doing being patient with such a rebellious people? Sometimes even reading through the account of Israel makes me upset. What is God doing with his patience? Well, the promised seed of the woman who is Christ God is making good on his promise. He preserved his people. He preserved his promises. He kept his covenant so that the Messiah might be born according to all that was written and prophesied of him. So that he would be the savior of his people and of all people for the world. All of this is because of Christ. 
Let's go back to the Old Testament. Do you remember King David? That great man of God? And you remember his great sin? He was called a man after God's own heart, even after this sin. He repented. He was forgiven. He believed God and he was justified, just like Abraham, just like you, just like me. David was saved by faith in God and his promises, ultimately in his greater son, the greater king, Jesus Christ. And you and I, in spite of our great sin, we have been saved through faith in Jesus. In 2 Samuel 7, God makes his great covenant with David to build him a dynasty, a kingdom without end from which the Messiah would come and reign for eternity. But after this covenant, David sins with Bathsheba. Now at this, did God make his covenant? No. Did he break his promise? Absolutely not. God makes his covenant and he makes it good in himself. God upholds the entirety of his covenant because he knows that no man ever could. If you study each covenant in the Old Testament, you'll notice one common theme, and that is that no man ever keeps it. No man except God in Christ. Does our sin break the great salvation we have in Jesus Christ? By no means. It is on Christ's own merit, on Christ's perfection, on his complete sacrifice, not on our own. We are secure in him, not on ourselves. Listen to what this King David wrote about the God we have in Psalm 103, verse 8 to 14. He writes, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. This is your God. This is your Father. This is what is yours in Christ Jesus. Would you believe it? Would you hold on to it? Reach out and grasp it. It's yours. Store this up in your heart. This is the foundation of your faith, of your very life. Your life does not consist of merely the things you see right now, the things you taste, touch, and smell. No, your life is far beyond this world. And the only place that you can be sure of it is in the gospel. Do not succumb to the lies of the enemy who holds out your past in front of you 
who goes running into your closet to try and find all the skeletons he can and wave them around. Those skeletons exist in your memory, but not in the eyes of God. They are no longer yours. You are free in Christ. See, what the enemy does is actually quite backwards. He tries to discourage us with the fact that we're sinners. He tries to discourage us with the fact that we have a wretched track record. But the fact of the matter is, if I am a sinner, this is very good news. Because Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. There's a quote by Charles Spurgeon I want to read you. He said, my hope lives not because I'm not a sinner, but because I am a sinner for whom Christ died. My trust is not that I am holy, but that being unholy, Christ is my righteousness. My faith rests not upon what I am or shall be or feel or know, but in who Christ is, in what he has done, and in what he is now doing for me. Hallelujah. My friends, let us have the same perspective as Paul here in our passage. Let us be broken by our sin, humbled by our weakness and frailty, and overcome with the gospel. Do not waste the opportunities that are afforded to us when we are brought into despair, when we are downcast, discouraged by our own inability to obey Christ. The enemy might see this as a great opportunity to throw us down in the dirt, but this is an even greater opportunity to throw ourselves down at the cross, to look not on ourselves, get your eyes off of yourself. The answer's not in you. It was never in you. God never put his hope in mankind. Did you know that? The only hope for mankind is in God. He was in charge throughout the whole of scriptures. It's all his plan. It's all his sovereign grace. There's not a single thing you and I can do to change that. Christ saves such a wretch as you and me so that he might get all the glory for his great mercy, his great patience and love. Your past is a wonderful testimony to the work of God in Christ. Come back from your discouragement. Come back from your despair. Come back from your efforts to try and regain God's favor. Come back to the gospel that declares to you it is finished. There is no part in those three words that say, but you have to. No. It's a full stop. It is finished. Jesus was perfectly patient with the chief of sinners. This man who was a blasphemer, who persecuted the church, who persecuted Christ himself, 
who had no regard for his fellow man, who had no real understanding of the scriptures. But Christ was patient with him. And Christ saved him. How much more will he be patient with you? If he is patient with sinners, if he died for us while we were still sinners, how much more thou that you are his child will he be patient towards you? If you do not have your faith in Christ tonight, if you're not saved, I beg of you, come to Christ. Believe on Him for salvation. Believe in the gospel and the finished work on the cross for you. Your sin is not too great. Your past is not too messy. You can't bring anything on the table that will cause Him to stand up and walk away. Your shame is not too heavy. Maybe this new year can also be the beginning of a new life for you. A new life in Christ, forgiven and redeemed, made into a new creation. Nothing may really change on January 1st, but it might change tonight on January 7th. If you have any New Year's resolutions, your salvation is first and foremost. There's nothing you can do on this earth, in this life, to positively affect your eternity apart from Christ. If you do not believe in him, it doesn't matter what you do. All of your good works are a road straight to hell. There is no coming back on this wide path. The whole world walks down it. But there is a man, and he stands in front of the narrow path, and he says, I am the door. No man enters into the kingdom of heaven but through me. There is one way. Come to Christ and be saved. Christians, be encouraged in the gospel. The gospel was not just for your conversion. It's not just a one-time, one-and-done deal and has no effect on the rest of your life. The gospel is your life. So my prayer for us is that we would turn away from ourselves, from any of our own efforts, any hope that you have that is not found in this book, that is not the man Jesus Christ, that hope will let you down. Come to Christ. You who call yourself the chief of sinners, there is a Savior for you. Let's pray. Our great Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your gospel. I pray that you would encourage the hearts of all of us who are discouraged in our sin, who are discouraged with our past, who have lost sight of the cross. 
I ask that you would bring us back to viewing the cross, to seeing the hope of our salvation. Would you fill us with your spirit? Give us strength. Give us this hope that is ours in you. Make good on your promises, O Lord, and save those who are not yet saved. To the glory of your name, and may our testimonies, may your gospel, as it has changed us, would it be witness to all those around us? Would we take this beyond ourselves into our families, our workplaces, our schools, everywhere we go? The fact that we are new creatures in Christ, would this be evident to all people? And would you use us as vessels to bring your gospel to those who need it? We thank you for your love. We thank you for Jesus. And we pray all this in your name. Amen.